Welcome to Re-Review, where we watch movies from our past with a perspective from today. Your hosts are Matt, Bobby, and Austin, and we love the films from our youth, so we're taking a look back to see if they still hold up. On this episode, we're discussing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. It was released in 1993, directed by Stuart Gillard, starring Elias Cotius, Paige Turco, and Stuart Wilson. This is the third film in the franchise where the Turtles experience with time travel. Now, this is a fair warning. We're spoiling a 30-year-old movie, so if you haven't seen it, we will be revealing key plot points. You know, being a kid is such a fun time. and Being a kid and being into Ninja Turtles was an even more fun time. Um, you know what I couldn't imagine? Being a parent and raising your kid through a Ninja Turtles page and having to sit in the theater and watch this particular movie. <laughs> oh, And it's sad because they didn't have alcohol back then in the theaters, so like, I could only imagine how they made it through it. You know, it's one of these things where I feel like, especially after watching the first two, it seemed the the glaring thing here that stood out more than anything, and maybe it was a lower budget, but just production values, just all the, the little things that you look at in terms of how they're presented. I mean, the movie opened with this egregious orange filter that maybe was supposed to mm-hmm. represent it was Japan, but then faded out to that filter to actual colors, and it just started being off from that moment. You know, the funny thing is, is like, honestly, I actually kind of liked the opening shot. I mean, it was very much like what you would see back in like the 60s and 70s in the Japanese movies. Like, I liked the shot of like the red sun and like the the samurai on horseback. Like, I actually liked that Mm -hmm. shot. And then it cut to the non-sun shot. And you're right. They just like had a red filter. And I just imagine like, because this is like pre-digital. So like, do they literally just have like a square red filter in front of the camera and just slowly lifted it? As like they were cutting to the non. Oh, I assumed shot. it was some kind of like color correction, like post, oh, yeah, post maybe. processing thing, and timing. Yeah. It was it was bad, no matter what. Like, I mean, was... this is the thing we, without leading the witness to us getting to the end. It's one of the you know you watched it as a kid, right? Both of you. Yes, I watched it in theater as a kid. I didn't see it in theater, but I remember seeing it at some point. I think. I mean, this. I feel that same way. I have a very like blocked memory on, you know, when I think of uh, the turtles in a in samurai outfits, I think of the toys I had, <laughs> where they were like that that I enjoyed playing with, but not necessarily um, this particular film. But Matt, you said you know you watched it in your youth, and it was something you enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, and that's the weird thing watching this. And it's kind of the point of this whole podcast, right, is to go back Mm -hmm. and watch these things that in your mind were amazing and see if it's actually true or not. Because, you know, watching the first movie, I was genuinely shocked, like, how much I enjoyed the experience. Like, Mm -hmm. a great movie, it was not. You mean the newest time you watched it or the first time you watched it? No, no. Well, when we watched it for this podcast or whatever. Yeah. you know, it was it was nice to watch it, and it you know it actually held up pretty decently. Like I actually enjoyed the experience, mm-hmm. and for all of its flaws, I kind of forgave it. The second movie was definitely very weak, but there were still some things that I kind of liked about. It. Like the cinematography was still okay for what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the opening stock shots of New York. Like everything felt okay. Like it felt like a natural continuation of it. Whereas this one, watching it, like as a kid, I loved this movie because I think this was one of the first movies I watched when I moved to America and I had watched mm. it in a theater. I got to see it close to its actual release. I didn't see it like three years later, like I did when I lived in Germany. So like, it was nice to actually see it when it came out. And yeah, I had the toys. I loved the samurai motif that they had going. Like it felt uh, organic to the franchise for them to be in Japan. 
And watching this movie was so amazing for me as a kid. I love the design of the turtles and the samurai costumes. I love the theme. I love the staff. I remember I, I'm pretty sure they had a toy of the staff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember wanting to get it so bad. And like, it wasn't in my area when I, you know, when it came out and then watching this now hurts <laughs> so much, <laughs> so much to watch it now because all the things I thought were amazing back then are the things I hated watching it no. now. <laughs> well, we could kind of start with, you know, I think the first, well, not the first thing I already talked about the first thing with the filter, but you, we see, we see our turtles and it was just almost abrasive. The quality change in the costumes. I, I, I hate to be so cruel, but I think the first question I asked is where's Jim Henson. Yeah. Yeah. There's also like an aesthetic change to them too. Like they had more spots that were more noticeable to me and less like variation and gradation on their skin. Like they seem to be more just like greenish yeah, as and, opposed uh, to like browns and greens and muted greens and olives and all sorts of different stuff. It was just like more brightish green. And I guess mm-hmm. Matt, you mentioned that also, um, when we were watching it, that Splinter seemed much more like a puppet this time because he was like always be. He had the like Sesame Street situation where he's always behind <laughs> he's like something. Oscar the Grouch. Or, yeah, like I didn't even feel and like it, it was a puppet. It felt like it was like a mechanical puppet for sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, it would like the weird thing about it too is is like I could understand the spots if the spots were canon to like the comic or the cartoon, but they weren't. It was almost like the director went to like a zoo and saw a turtle and was like, they have spots. So these need spots. <laughs> and they were just distracting to me. And like, yeah, the overall quality, like more than anything else, more than anything, it was the eyes for me, these wide mm-hmm. open dead looking eyes. It just was creepy. And then the lighting did not help anything at all. And they really the played change, on the change of the mouth shape, the mouth shape. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, I mean it's always been kind of bad, to be honest. Like the way they would do the, I, you know, I'm guessing in their minds if they did, you know, what Kermit the Frog, looking like just mouth chopping yeah, up uh, and down. Right. Yep. Would it? Would mm-hmm. it be so? So like they probably, and I, I would love to see the behind the scenes for the entire franchise. But sure. you know, somebody had said like, well, if you don't see them like do the lip squish in thing, like if you do a pouty face, then it won't read as you know, realistic or human or whatever you'd want to classify it as. But in this case, it just was like comically bad. Whereas Jim Henson, like all, you know, whatever to whoever did, I can't remember who it was who did the effects for this, like all something or another was the company. Um, Like it just wasn't well done. Like, and I get it. Living up to Jim Henson's legacy is like doing the Jurassic Park after Stan Winston stopped, stepped out or whatever. Right. That's mm-hmm. such a legacy to live up to and such a bar to have to hit. But I'm like, these, these were on par with like the stage show turtles or the TV show where they had like the female turtle or whatever. Like the quality just was not there whatsoever. It's a bit of a shame because it just looks like it's like a staggering amount of work to make these movies, whether they're good or not the technology to make their faces move and to do all the things. I mean, there's just like a, must be just like a ridiculous amount of like movie trickery in these kinds of movies that just kind of gets overlooked because some of the other stuff isn't just quite there. How much of the quality issues was really made obvious because of their lighting choices? The lighting like didn't seem to be motivated by any kind of practical light on set. 
it just seemed to be like lit. Yeah, it was like a TV show. It it wasn't. It was like what TV shows back were in the '90s and early 2000s. Like now, we're used to cinematic TV shows, but this was definitely like a three camera setup type TV show. Like they just Mm -hmm. lit the shit out of the set, and then like it even have like the ambiance of like even the set itself, the decorations. Like yeah, Mm -hmm. I know they probably cleaned it since then, but what this location looked like in the second movie, it had character to it. This one was just, I don't know, it was just really Mm -hmm. bland. It looked like a really like. Uh, poorly put together clubhouse almost rather than you know what it should be like I mean we'd noticed it throughout the entire movie that the set decorations the set quality was like you know 1950s you know you know Flash Gordon level at some points and I I understand why they would do that kind of thing it's like to save time right like so if they're like shooting all these shots like they don't they can't really like set up all this lighting because their budget was clearly lower like they needed to be able to just do the stuff and get out and not have to mess with it. How much of it is because I think you mentioned Stuart Gillard's forte was TV shows, but this may have been one of the only movies he did. I mean, I th- I think a guy like this is like a prolific type of like, he's just a, a worker, worker type guy who probably like commands a set well, can get something done, has a ton of experience to work on like these type of special effects puppet type movies. Like, I mean, we talked about how in their costumes, they must have super low visibility, not be able to see anything, like have trouble grabbing things. And so, I mean, you have to know how to basically like cheat your way through all that kind of stuff. Right. Like you can't have them just like grab really in one shot. Really what you should do is do like, okay, they reach out to go touch and then cut and then the next shot, like have like a stand in hand kind of thing, grab something so that you're not just sitting there like doing all these takes with some blind stunt performer who's like, can't see, can't really move super great. You know, it's like. Yeah, but they did it just fine for the first two movies. So why is this one so bad? I think they, I think they cut the schedule and the. They did the second movie in less than a year. This one had two years, I think, if I remember correctly. Even if it was a year, it would be the same. Like, if they did this thing in a week, I'd believe it. But, oh man, I, it's a bad, it's bad. I'm sorry. Like, I don't care how much effort, I don't care how much effort and time they put into it. If the end result is this, like, I don't know who to blame. I don't know who to blame the director or the cinematographer, but somebody's mm-hmm. to blame for the poor quality of this movie. But, but to me, like, that's story driven, I think. I think if there was a better story and like the, the set stuff wasn't as good. I think that it might be a little bit more passable. Okay. We could get into the story here. So we, we meet our turtles. They do a little ninja action for us at the beginning to remind us that they are indeed teenage mutant. Wait, ninja what turtles. ninja action? They danced and like, did like, a, yes, they practiced. Yes. yes. I mean, it wasn't did like you, a practice. It was like, were a, you not enthralled and amazed by you know, their role and tumbling work? Actually, I was. They are Thank they you. are they are extraordinary <laughs> athletic and I keep thinking like wow like they're doing really really high kicks in this crazy heavy suit and they do all these like spins and flips and mm-hmm. I mean clearly like the dude who can do all this nunchuck stuff can do it without being able to like can do it blindfolded and yes. with like these giant thick like gloves that are tying his fingers together. 
It, it is a feat of skill. Absolutely. So we're, we're introduced to them, showing us their magnificence. And we get April O'Neil comes back in, and she has found a dirty scepter, which looked like a lamppost. That transports you back in time. I know, Matt, you have feelings about the scepter and also about the nature of how it works. You know what? To be honest, as much as I might give it crap or whatever, at least it wasn't a hot tub, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> at least I, I will give it. So I didn't like the the logistics of how like it transported people um, because it very much seemed like at first it's like you had to be touching it at the same some at the same time somebody mm-hmm. else because like mm-hmm. that I will give it con- like credit for the continuity. The fact that it existed and it did what it did was because the scepter existed in two separate time periods, right? The same scepter. And so it created a temporal link between the two, you know, time periods. And so like that, I'll give credit compared to like, you know, we typically see, you know, science is usually the number one go-to for time travel. Um, you know, the hot tub time machine, which is what, what was it like? got over electrocuted or something the chlorine i guess hyper accelerated particles or some yeah. <laughs> something that sent them back in time um this this you know this kind of definitely leans more into the magic aspect of it um so like i was fine with it as a i don't want to call it a macguffin but it's along the same lines as a macguffin um but i didn't quite get the the mechanics of the fact that you know when april gets switched with kenshin was his name right mm-hmm. Um, they were both touching and then later on they make the comment that like oh you have to be the same weight or whatever to do the swap which doesn't make a lot of sense because I'm pretty sure these turtles are way heavier than any of the guys that they bring over mm-hmm. and it's not like the armor came with them so you can't include the armor in the weight at all and I'm pretty sure all of them weren't holding the scepter at the same time during that battle in order to go back in time so like it just was kind of overly convenient for me but kids movie, I guess. <laughs> kids movie, you guess. And, and, you know, we we also, as this kind of process is happening, we get a, uh, a revisit from our favorite murderer. <laughs> Oops. Casey Jones. <laughs> <laughs> what, why, what did they choose to do with this character? And or why did they choose to do it this way, Bobby? You know, that's a very, very good question. Because when I saw that he was coming back, I was so excited. And then they sidelined him. Like, he was basically, like, a comic relief babysitter type. Like, oh, and then had this dual role, probably because they tried to incentivize him to come back to this. That he also played, I don't know, like, some japanese double crossing like prisoner guy like in the i mean he's not japanese but he was in japan so mm-hmm. he was like a double crosser guy and i thought oh wow that's the big like empire strikes back like kaiser sozi like twist but it didn't have quite hmm. that much oomph. oomph to it but i did not expect a kaiser sozi reference for this <laughs> I mean, it's tough, right? Because watching the cartoons, Casey Jones kicks butt. And again, he is uh, Mr. Oops, ready to kill Shredder without hesitation. And it was very just strange to have, you know, he was there to hang out, babysit the uh, the Japanese that came over, 
you know, in place of the turtles. And, and then we got to see him. Yeah. Play a spy that didn't really do too much. I, yeah, unfortunately, it kind of me. like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's unfortunately like another missed opportunity, which it seems like that's like a running theme for this. And it's funny because he's such a good Casey Jones. When mm-hmm. I think of Casey Jones, I don't think of the cartoon. I don't think of the comic book. I think of Elias as Casey Jones. He's mm-hmm. so good in the role. Like he, you know, he kind of fits exactly what I think Casey Jones should be. And even the little bits and pieces that he's here, he's still like, it feels like Casey Jones still, but it just feels like they didn't really know what to do with him. And like, maybe if they would have had more taking place in the modern era, like maybe that could have been like the, cause they kind of played with it, right? Like they were at the bar towards the end yeah. and like he was trying to gather them so they could do the swap or whatever. Like they could have had it more of like a, will he get them back in time in order to do it? Mm-hmm. And it didn't, they didn't really do that. Like they could have focused a little bit more, like maybe at the very beginning, these guys ran away out of fear and it was his job to go find them around town. Like that was given his relationship with April or, you know, I'm, I'm making one of them ahead. Um, why didn't he go into the past with him? Well, he wanted to technically. Yeah, Didn't they say he was going to, but then for some reason he couldn't because. <laughs> because of the contract. Yeah. <laughs> because of the script. Uh, I mean, it, it, like Bobby said, it's another missed opportunity because I think I would love to see Casey Jones, you know, back in ancient Japan, you know, mm-hmm. wearing, a, wearing awesome. a samurai outfit or something like that. Yes. That would have been yes. legit, especially like if he would have placed the face masks with his little hockey, hockey mask or uh-huh. something. And he mm-hmm. still had like a hockey stick. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Or he, he got he got like one of the guys in the village to make him a hockey stick. Yes. Look See, at how good we're making we, this. We ju- we've just improved the movie by like a couple points just by saying that. <laughs> we we walk through, we get introduced to Mitsu, who's the leader of the rebellion. Um, there's lots of fighting. We have uh, Stuart Wilson playing Walker, who's supposed to be the bad guy. And he's got guns and we're supposed to be afraid of guns. And we get lots of turtle fighting in between there. I think we were all just kind of, I don't know. I was kind of tuned out. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, you mentioned Donatello's stick fighting and, and yes, the, the proficiency they have with the weapons is really good, but the choreography and probably it has to do with the way it was shot just didn't lend to give it oomph behind all the fight scenes. Mm-hmm. They didn't mm-hmm. feel great. And they, the, the quips that I enjoyed in the first two movies they tried to pepper them in and they just never really landed. There was only a couple few jokes that I found funny, but outside of that, it was like, Oh, can, can everyone just stop talking and maybe learn how to actually fight? I don't know. Yeah. It definitely didn't have, not like the first two had like great fighting sequences either. Cause at the end of the day, like Bobby said, you're fighting against the suits, you're fighting against visibility and everything else. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's tough to do what you needed to do in the suits, but they kind of made it work, right? They kind of, they, between the way that they shot the fight sequences and more importantly to me, watching this one, the the lighting, the camera work, and the mu- the music and sound effects was a big deal. Mm-hmm. They, they would, this was so Looney Tunes yeah. in the way they did everything. And like, I think this was the weakness of like having a writer director because like no one was there to critique what he wrote down. And so 
that kind of commentary was just probably lost. Like, I don't know how much of like what was on the script turned into what was in the ADR for the turtles. That was probably like more than 90% like dictated in the booth rather than like on the set. They probably just had them doing stuff and it probably wasn't even, they probably had the turtles fight on the script. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. then all the ADR stuff was probably like, all right, Corey, uh, how about you say a line about, you know, shell shock or something or, you know, something along those lines. So, yeah, I it, it for a movie about Ninja Turtles, it kind of was lacking, you know that that feeling and stuff that you want from from fight choreography. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's just surprising because again, we've been through two of them. We talked about the timing to execute the first two, and then it's just like, oh no, why'd you why'd you fall off the way you do? I mean, you mentioned kind of the things in terms of Casey going back to Japan and make it better. Bobby, you know, you everything we've watched here, what what would you change to to kind of give this the oomph that we're talking about? Um besides the whole story. Okay. I mean, geez. All right. <laughs> Cut it like a fish, Bobby. Let's go. <laughs> Although I did read that the time scepter situation and the feudal Japan thing is actually based on a comic book story so i will give them a little bit of credit for actually like pulling having source material pulling from source material as opposed to just making up their own thing you know i appreciate that but i don't know like as much as i give like toka and razor trouble i mean i really like the whole like idea of like the puppets and the animation and the and the turtles like I almost would have liked to have seen like instead of them go to some feudal Japan fight, like see them fight another like mutant creature or something. Oh, you want to like mystical Japan. Yeah. Like, you know, like some kind of dragon or something like that, you know, like, I mean, if you're going to be crazy, why not be crazy? You know? I guess dragons are crazy, but I, I I agree. I mean, ultimately, that would have been, yes, a very different film. And <laughs> if they were going back in time to save April from some mystical being or creature, it would have felt in line with everything else, you know, with, with the, the supernatural, you know, way that you think of the turtles and the things that they encounter. And at some point, why wasn't Krang there? I don't know. I'm just adding that in. <laughs> Krang back in time. Um it, it it's it's puzzling that it was I think I made jokes about Princess Bride at parts mm, yeah. because it just felt that that little bit right. of quirkiness. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of for me making a better it, production values is obviously huge. But I could imagine, even with what they were working with, if we just changed maybe the way things were edited, maybe maybe the way that we they presented those fight scenes. So there's, I probably would be a lot more forgiving. But this is definitely us kind of going back with those nostalgia glasses and going, oh boy, oh when, oh boy. When you have a really low budget and you choose a specific time period, I mean, you're just making it harder on yourself because basically, like. They have to find a location that looks like Japan. They have to Mm -hmm. dress everybody in period correct costuming. They have to like do the research to get the maps correct and the locations correct and the props and all that kind of stuff. And 
it just makes it really difficult when you're up against a small budget. I mean, I really think that go to your strengths, which to, in my opinion, to go back again is the creatures and the puppets and the effects and all that kind of stuff. And stick with a normal time so you don't have to worry about like costumes and crazy time situations and any of that kind of stuff and stick with a modern day story where at least you don't have to deal with all the ancient stuff. So just keep them in New York. I got it. (laughs) Easier to have them wearing jeans, (laughs) which does make sense. It it does make sense. Um, We move through where, where are we at? They, they eventually get back home and Splinter makes a joke. I that's I'm sitting here like I don't even know what like what of anything happened except for we get a scene you know uh, April's back and her and Casey are next to each other laughing and then they dance and end scene. Yeah, I mean I did like that there was there were some callbacks to the original movies. You know, like you know Splinter says like oh I made a funny like in the previous one. So but there is history that Splinter had a sense of humor and there was other kinds of things that they did in the previous movies. So I was like, oh yeah, I remember this one from the previous movie. And I liked that continuity. Like the passing out and actually calling yes, it out. Yes, yes. The me- the they even commentary. mentioned it. They said, wow, Splinter always does it to everybody, you know, which I, I appreciated that they mentioned that because it was a bit crazy. It It's just one of these things where I think the kid in me is going Come on. And and that's why, like you said, with the first movie, it was such a surprise to be like, you know what? Yes, I still feel my youth. And here they, I've, I've been devastated. And I'm not happy about that at all. Too dramatic? Maybe just a little bit. Wow. Um, one technical thing I do want to gripe about, just because as we saw it happening, there was a cringe factor bigger than anything. And that is Walker's death <laughs> falling into the ocean. <laughs> As he lays back on his chair and gets smaller and just falls into the running image of water moving with no splash or no feedback that the man has fallen to his doom. Please, everyone. Austin just wants a few things. Maybe give me some splash and give me a good earth. That's all I want. Just a good earth. I have a suggestion. If you can't do the splash, like, just cut it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like so he so he's falling and then you cut away from yeah, it. Yeah, he's fall or the and then you cut to a reaction of them going like No, you do like the Indiana Jones. He fell and then cut away, then come back and there's yeah. alligators eating him. Right. Yeah. That was a good ooh pancake. Pancake City or whatever, you know, some kind of joke. So I want to run through because we're three in right now. Uh Bobby, I want to hear your ranking. Uh, one, one, two, three, all day. Okay, Matt. One, two, three. <laughs> Gosh, two's not even getting a shot. I understand that it is definitely one, two, three. Fabi, are you recommending this film to the kids, to the adults, to the nostalgia-driven? I recommend this movie for a very specific audience. <laughs> Who's that audience? Tell us. If you... Must watch all of the Ninja Turtle movies to get the historical perspective. Bobby, are you saying we are that audience? Yes. If you would like to follow along with us and watch all the Turtle movies, we would be entirely grateful that you followed along with us through this whole thing. You're not wrong. You are not wrong. 
We would love it if you did this. An audience of re-review listeners only. <laughs> no one else. I, I, that's the most specific Bobby's ever been. Matt, are you recommending the third one? Uh, no. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think this movie is worth watching for a Ninja Turtle fan or an animatronic costume fan or anything else. I. I don't know yet whether or not to say just go straight to the reboot with mm-hmm. Megan Fox, but it's definitely, I don't, this, yeah. I I wish I could go back in time and undo something that we just did watching this movie, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it hurts. We are definitely lambasting or and or tearing this one apart, but it, it is what it is. This file's fully under skip this. You don't need it. You just don't need it at all. You know, as always, thank you for listening. And after watching this one, my neck hurts, my spots hurt, and even my bandana hurts. 